Good morning. And let's again begin with prayer. Gracious Father, we invite you into our presence. We ask that you enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and make us effective witnesses for you at this time in history. Lead in our discussion today that you might be glorified in our, in our activities. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson six in the quarterly uh, Hebrew, the message of Hebrews in the last days, and the title is Jesus the Faithful Priest. And the first paragraph of the lesson says, The gulf that exists between God and us was caused by sin. The problem was compounded because sin also implied the corruption of our nature. God is holy and sin cannot exist in his presence. So our own corrupted nature separated us from God just as our two, ma- just as two magnets in the wrong orientation repel each other. In addition, our corrupt nature made it impossible for human beings to obey God's law. Sin also involves misunderstanding. Human beings lost sight of the love and mercy of God and came to see him as wrathful and demanding. Uh, Let's clarify a couple things. Uh, First sentence, the gulf that exists between God and us was caused by sin. When When I first read that, the first thing that struck me is there's two gulfs. Two gulfs between God and man. Uh, one is innate in our beings, that we are finite beings and he's an infinite being. And because of the innate nature of his in, infinite self and, and our finite self, even in sinlessness there is a gulf. For instance, uh, God is infinite in power and energy. He's all-powerful and all energy originates with him. God is all-knowing. There's a gulf in knowledge. There's a gulf in energy between created beings and God. There's a gulf in knowledge. Uh, There's a gulf in time. God lives outside of time and over time and is able to access all points in time and has foreknowledge and all points in time are equal uh, laid out before God. We live in time. There's a gulf in time. Uh, There's a gulf in capacity. God can process infinite knowledge and infinite energy. We cannot process that. There is a gulf in presence. He can be in all places at once. And there is a gulf in responsibility. The scripture says all things hold together through him. And so he, there's a, there's even in sinlessness, there's a gulf. That gulf from our finiteness to his infinite being cannot be bridged. So God, remember the Godhead leaves infinity and interacts with us on our level but we never actually enter infinity. We don't interact on his level. Does that make sense? There's another gulf, though, the one the lesson's pointing out, one caused by sin, and that gulf can be bridged. Jesus bridged that gulf and offers to bring us across the bridge, the great divide, if you've heard the song about the great divide. Uh, how would you describe the gulf that sin has caused between us and God? A gulf of trust? Has trust been broken? Yes, we don't trust God. And because of sin, we cannot be trusted by God. We're untrustworthy. We don't trust him. And in our sinful, unconverted state, we can't be trusted. We can't be trusted to fulfill his original design, calling, and purpose for us until we have been recreated in his likeness. So there's a gulf of trust that keeps us separated. How about a gulf of love? 
in our unhealed state, we don't love God and we don't love others as God designed. Thus, our intimacy, our unity, our bond, our brotherhood is fractured by fear and selfishness. We're suspicious. We see threats. We're willing to take action uh, over others to, to advance ourselves rather than sacrifice for others. Only by the plan of salvation, dying to self and being reborn in Christ, do we have new motives that bridges the gulf such that we come into that at one mint with God and with others. I pray that they would be one as you and I are one, so forth. How about a gulf in wisdom and understanding? What is the wisdom of the world? According to Corinthians, foolishness to the things of God. The ways of the world are foolish, actually. But and, and so there's a gulf in understanding what's best. What are the wise actions to take? There's a major gulf there. The way the world will approach a problem and solve it is not the way that godly people will approach a problem and solve it. Now, when I say wisdom and understanding, I'm not talking about fact knowledge. That's that om, omniscience. There will always be a gulf there. He will always have all knowledge. We, don't, we won't. I'm talking about the, the wisdom of God so we understand the difference between love and the principles of love versus selfishness. We understand the, the principles of liberty, every person being persuaded in their own mind, versus coercion for a good cause. We, maybe we could have a conversation about that sometime. What would be necessary before you thought it was righteous and just to coerce another person? <laughs> Well, to save lives, to save the planet, to stop pollution, to stop the spread of a disease, to make sure people accept Jesus as their Savior. So they're not just saved for a few years on life because on earth because they don't get sick physically. They're saved eternally. We, want to save, we don't want to save just for 50, 60, 70, 80 years. We want to save souls for all eternity from hell. So isn't it righteous to, to, to coerce people to accept Jesus? Burn them at the stake. If you love design law, then you don't ever want to coerce. That's exactly right. So we, there's a gulf in earthly wisdom and godly wisdom, but we can actually have the wisdom of God now, truth, love, Liberty, openness, a love for pursuing and advancing in the truth. We can be wise in the things of God, the mature, those who develop by practice the ability to discern right from wrong. Another point to explore in the sentence, though, sin causes a breach, a gulf. Sin causes it. That's correct. Sin does. Where does sin exist? Where does sin occur? So the breach, the gulf, it's, is it caused by God? Is it caused by his anger, by his wrath, his, his fury, his, his heartache? Uh, is, is the breach uh, in record books? Is sin in record books? No, the breach is caused by sin, and sin happens in living people. So the gulf, what, what separates us from God is not in God. And it's not in some recorded history. That's not what keeps us separate. It's what's actually in us that keeps us from distrusting and operating out of harmony with him. 
So if sin occurs in hearts and minds of intelligent beings, and that is what causes the great gulf between us and God, then where will God's actions, activities, interventions, intercessions need to take place in order to bridge the gulf? In the hearts and minds of people. That's exactly right. That's where the work has to take place. That's why Christ had to become human, in order to to do something in humanity that we couldn't do in humanity for ourselves. So with that idea in mind, if you think of biblical metaphors, we're talking about high priestly activity, where does the blood need to be applied? Where is the blood payment made? Where is Christ's blood being ministered? And is that how you've always been taught it? No. Keep that in mind. Maybe we'll have time to get to the whole heavenly sanctuary theme. Christ ministering his blood in the sanctuary in heaven. If the gulf is in our hearts and minds, then what is that metaphorical description trying to describe to us? Jesus, of course, said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Jesus applied the metaphor to the internalization of the person. That's where Jesus said it had to go. He said his flesh is real food and his blood is real drink. Do you understand people who think concretely? They can't abstract. They get offended. They think he's talking cannibalism. Or they create a theology in which you eat a wafer, and once it passes the lips and gums and it's into the esophagus, it does a transmutation and turns into literal human flesh and blood. Transubstantiation, some call it. What of the idea in the lesson that suggests, in fact it says, I think I'll say it, God is holy, and sin cannot exist in his presence, quote, unquote. What do you think of that idea? It is it? Where, where did sin begin? With whom? In heaven. And what was his name there? And what was his job there, according to what we have in Scripture? He had a position? Cover, uh, uh, he was an archangel covering cherub. Where did he operate? And when we read books like Patriarchs and Prophets, uh, um, uh, Desire of Ages, and the, the chapter it is finished, talks about in the opening of the Great Controversy, where was Satan doing his deceptive work? In whose presence? But at the end, isn't that what kills the wicked? Is the presence of God? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but, but, but historically, and, and we need to connect those two points. Tina, you're raising a good point. How do we connect them? How do we make sense of them? How is it that in the end, God's life-giving glory, or as Ellen White writes, to sin wherever ever it is found, our God is a consuming fire. How is that the reality of the wicked in the end? And it is, and we'll get to that hopefully here in a little bit. It's in the lesson notes. But how is it that, in fact, Lucifer did rebel and sin did exist in heaven in God's presence? When God came and spoke to them, when Jesus or, or Abraham, didn't God come speak to Abraham? 
Was Abraham still a sinner? Yep. Okay. So, how is it in heaven happening, though? It's grace, guys. It's gracious. God's grace veiling or preventing, if you will, holding at bay the full reaping of the consequences that sin brings. If God would allow Satan and his sympathizers in heaven to reap what their rebellion would naturally result in in them, which would be a gulf between them and God, and who is the source of their life? And if they have what they truly want, total, complete separation from the source of life, what happens to them? They die. If God allows it to happen in the opening of the controversy, what from the other beings looking in and observing do they perceive? What's likely to be understood? What's the conclusion from that? God, yeah, do what God says or he kills you. And what happens to love and trust? It's destroyed. And so God graciously prevented Satan and his sympathizers from reaping what sin would naturally do until the outworking of his principles could be made manifest and the plan of salvation could be worked out. Yes? So grace is for beings who are wandering astray rather than just humans generally, and whether they respond and are restored or not is still in their personal choice to make for grace to have the effect that God wants it to have rather than something that it's beyond our control. So for me, grace is always the, the work of a gracious God. God is being gracious. And his works are always towards healing and salvation. So the ones that, that didn't wander astray didn't need the grace. Sure they did. Sure they did. No, they needed the grace as well. They needed the grace because without God's gracious interventions to prevent Lucifer and his sympathizers from immediately reaping what their sin would have naturally resulted in, they would have died. If God didn't graciously forestall that, and that's what the scripture says, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. If he didn't graciously forestall that, then the loyal ones would have misperceived and had a, a seed of doubt put in their mind. And many of them may have fallen into fear and rebellion, thinking wrongly that God killed them. So it was an act of grace for them as well to allow Satan. You can read more about this in Desire of Ages on the same chapter. It is finished. After the cross, she goes on and say, and say that even after Satan was exposed as a murderer, he lost all sympathy with the beings in heaven at the cross because he exposed himself as a, as a murderer in heaven. But he was not then yet destroyed because more yet was to be revealed. It was for man's sake and the sake of the onlooking universe that more was yet to be revealed. Okay, So this is all working out of grace. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says the basic purpose of the Levitical priesthood was to mediate between sinful people and God. Priests were appointed by God in order to minister in behalf of human beings. Therefore, they needed to be merciful and understanding of human weakness. Why were priests, why were there priests or why was there a priesthood established to mediate between God and man? Well, because of sin, right? Well, 
Who are the priests? Are they not sinners? Or are the priests? So what is the point of a priesthood of sinners mediating between God and a group of sinners? Understand grace better. He says understand grace better. Let me put it another way. Who was mediating between God and man before Sinai? Before the Levitical priesthood? Before Moses was born? She said, Jesus. Okay, who was mediating at Sinai? Who was mediating with the fire and the pillar? Who was that? So Jesus is still there. So what's the point of the priesthood? Jesus didn't, oh, we got a priesthood. Jesus is not there anymore. He's still there. Who's the water they drank from? Jesus is still mediating. So you're right. Jesus, of course, is the mediator. But what's the point of this Levitical priesthood? Who was mediating between God and man prior to Sinai, prior to Leviticus? What about Exodus 19, 5 and 6? And that's before the Levitical law is given. It's before they even get the commandment to Sinai. God says his vision. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Did that mean, does this text mean that you, the Levites, will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Or was that to be the whole nation of Israel? Okay, all right. Hmm. Peter quotes that and applies it to who? Who is to be a royal priesthood in a holy nation? That's church. The church. We're, so we're a royal priesthood in a holy nation. Hmm. So why did God then in, in, institute the Le- Levites? What's going on with that? Is it that he's using human visibility to act out from one stage to another so we can understand human beings better than we could in invisible things. Well, I like what you said, especially when you use the word stage. Yeah. Yes, because it was a theater, a stage, a play. He actually gave them a, a, a stage, a really neat props, cool costumes, and a script. We call that scripture. But it was a script for a play. Understand everything in the Levitical system was theater, object lesson, metaphor, acted out. It had no salvation benefit at all other than educational, and the education led to protection from sinful living. One did not have to be part of the Levitical priesthood, and Paul's making this point very clearly, very shortly, and we'll get to it when we talk about Melchizedek. Who was Melchizedek? Which, which, how many generations from Aaron was he? Wait. How many, you know, was he a descendant of Abraham? No. Well, he couldn't be part of the chosen godly people then, could he? He had to be part of the system, didn't you? God chose people before Abraham. Exactly right. Exactly right. Understand the entire purpose of the system was educational. Uh, Hebrews makes it very clear that the animal sacrifices cannot cleanse consciences. There's no salvation benefit there. It was all theatrical. 
to lead or teach the larger reality that is restorative and healing, and that reality, of course, is Jesus. Yes. So after the Israelites were in Canaan, in their separate tribe boundaries, and they didn't all come to the temple all the time for every time they committed sin and bring an offering. It was all for them to understand, like they're saying, the plan of salvation in the bigger picture rather than something that they had to do in order to make everything work. Yes, so the theatrical sanctuary in the wilderness had three tribes camped, three, three on each of the four sides. And the Levites camped in between. It was just a theatrical way of describing the Levites representing in their white robes the believers in Christ who have had their hearts renewed and have Christ-like character going out to the four corners of the world where all the other people are. So the non-Levites represent the unconverted peoples of the world and the Levites represent the believers in Christ who take the gospel message to the world. It's a very simple uh, living theater that was being acted out. And Jesus mentioned to the Samaritan, the woman at the well, she said, you, you Samaritans don't know who you worship, but we, worship, we Jews do worship because salvation comes through the Jews. Yeah, that, that was the promise of Genesis 3.15, and this is the focus of the Old Testament scripture. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, talking about Jesus, is the promised Messiah. Without Jesus, no one's saved, and this is why we focus down on Abraham's children, because the whole point of scripture is the plan of salvation. You also discover in Bible prophecy, after the time of Jesus, the the future prophecies focus on the Christian world, not the Islamic world, not the uh, Chinese world, not the Incan world, uh, not because God doesn't care about them, but the Bible focus is always the plan of salvation. And that's where the focus of Bible prophecies go. And that's why in Revelation 13, it exposes the one manifestation of, of the beastly system of revelation that persecutes God's people during the Dark Ages. It's not focusing on the same beastly powers that are corrupting people through paganism in, uh, in, in Central Africa, uh, even though Satan is using his pagan powers there to corrupt the image of God in people. It's not the focus because they didn't have the gospel. It's focusing on Satan's powers warring against the gospel. It's what it's always doing. And symbolically, the Israelites camping on all sides of the temple, you couldn't get to the temple unless you went through the Jews. So why the theater then? If, if, if people prior to Sinai um, and God's intent was to call them all to be a priesthood of believers, because the people were difficult to teach, they were childlike, they were steeped in many pagan customs and beliefs, they were hard-hearted, they were resistant, uh, and so God stooped to their level and took them to the sandbox like a parent takes a three-year-old to the sandbox Remember in cradle roll, when I, when I grew up in church, in our cradle roll department, or, or small children's department, we actually had a, a table that you took the top off and it had beach sand in it, and we had all these little stuff we could play and act out. This is, this is what's happening. God is taking them to teach them, to illustrate object lessons. Right after God gave the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, we read the following. Still trying to answer, why then this priesthood? Why was it established? Uh, Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at the distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us lest we die. God created Adam and Eve and had face-to-face communication with them. And after sin, he talked directly with people 
even sinners in rebellion? Who talked to Cain after Cain murdered Abel? Directly. Who talked directly to him? God did. Who talked to Noah? Who talked to Abraham? Okay. To Hagar. To many, many, many people. Uh, to Samuel's mother. So the point being is, God always wants to talk to us directly with no one between. No human priesthood, no Levites between. But what do you do, loving parents in this room? What do you do if you have a child who doesn't want to talk to you, who is terrified, who pleads and begs to never be brought into your presence? Do you set up others to represent you and go talk to them for you? That's what's happening. This is what's happening. It was because of the hardness of their hearts. You can read in Patriarchs and Prophets 364 where Ellen White describes this process of continually adding in these regulations because of that. Third paragraph. There are some important differences, however. Jesus was not chosen from among men. Instead, Jesus adopted human nature in order to in order, among other things, to serve as a priest on our behalf. Jesus did not offer sacrifices for his own sins, but only for the sin, our sins because he was sinless. Offered sacrifices for our sins. What, is, what does that mean, offered sacrifices? Jesus offered a sacrifice for our sins. Well, would we all agree that Jesus' life, death, resurrection, his voluntary self-sacrifice is the solution for the sin problem. We all agree for that, with that, right? It's God's means of resolving the sin problem. Okay, so we all agree with that. But why? What did it do? How did it accomplish it? Well, don't we have to first define what we understand the problem to be before we can comprehend what the solution is? Even though we all agree Jesus is the solution, what he actually accomplished changes based on what we think the problem is other than labeling it sin. Sin solves. I mean, we could leave it there. Jesus solves sin. Solves the problem. Bridges the gulf. We can leave it very, very general. But if we want to understand more, we have to first diagnose what the sin problem is. And in order to diagnose the sin problem, you have to have a standard. And what's the standard? God's law. And that goes right back to the question and the origin of the controversy. How do you define his law? And if you define the law as a system of rules imposed like humans make up that requires external enforcement and punishment, then breaking the law is a legal problem. And we are condemned to a, a legal action by the sovereign to execute the, the condemned, if that's your problem. If your law, on the other hand, you worship the Creator, His laws are the principles of life and health, and, and breaking them would be like breaking any of the laws of health, then sin is a terminal condition. We're dead in trespass and sin. We have a condition without remedy, results in death. And God's activity now is to fix the condition, to heal us from it. The fourth paragraph states, Hebrews says that Jesus prayed to him who was able to save um, 
him from death and was heard. Hebrews was referring to the second death from which God saved Jesus when he resurrected him. Hebrews also says that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Obedience was new to Jesus, not because he was disobedient, but because he was God. As sovereign over the universe, Jesus did not obey anyone. Instead, everyone obeyed him. So much in this paragraph we could explore. <laughs> uh, let's, let, why don't we start with this one? From where does death come? Absence from God. Absence from God, which is caused by? Sin. Can you think of any Bible texts that support? I agree with you. Give me a Bible text that states that. The wages of sin are death. The wages of sin is death, not the infliction of God. Any others? It's Romans 6.23. How about James 1.15? Sin, when full grown, brings forth uh, Galatians 6.8. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. So it's very clear. Sin pays its wage, which is destruction or death. So, so that's where death comes from. What do you think about this idea that, that Christ died the second death? Can anyone provide an inspired reference that actually states Christ died the second death? Do you understand this is a core, passionately heartfelt, insistent belief among the penal legal adherents? And there's a reason for that. If your model is God's law works like human law, Sin is transgression of the law, which is breaking the rules. The minimum penalty for that is death, and the death is eternal death. You can't have uh, salvation unless somebody pays the penalty. So somebody has to die the eternal death, the second death, because if somebody doesn't die the eternal death, the second death, then your penalty isn't paid, and you'll have to die it. And therefore, if you suggest he didn't die the second death, it gets them very anxious, very agitated, very upset, very fearful, and they can no longer actually engage in reasoned discussion. Because they're so frightened, they're in panic mode. And they only have to destroy those who are suggesting something against the second death. And I don't mean destroy literally. Destroy through, through their reputation. You're a heretic. You don't believe in the blood atonement. You don't believe Jesus had to die for us. And this is what happens. Yes? It appears in this paragraph that God changed his mind regarding Christ's prayer to Stephanie. Let this cup pass from you. Nevertheless, my will abide in God. Does God save Jesus from the second death? So he answered his prayer. Okay, I didn't track that at all, so I'm trying to process that. So um, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, to continue with the with the question, though. Did Jesus die the second death? Did he experience the second death? Separation from God. And some churches go beyond it and said he went to hell and um, you know experienced hell. So again, I'd like to 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 anybody that says that, just challenge. Give me an inspired reference. Give me any place in scripture, any place else that you value where it actually says that. But the root difficulty here is the same. It has to do with a, a, false, uh, a, a false premise on how God's law functions and having the wrong law concept. And this is uh, the idea. Understand the idea. Every sin must meet its punishment urged. Satan. Satan. 
Desire of Ages 761. And who would love for Jesus to die the second death and never rise again? Who's, whose fantasy is that? Yes, yeah, so interesting that people who teach that are teaching that fantasy. Um, and when you ask them, he goes, well, he didn't really die. If you, if you start defining, well, what's the second death? A death from which there's no resurrection? Well, yes, but he, he thought he wasn't going to rise again. He couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. Therefore, it was for his emotional experience on the cross, it was the equivalent of the second death. So what was he telling his disciples all along when he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die, and I'm going to rise on the third day? He wasn't expecting to rise? He didn't have confidence he was going to rise? He didn't have faith that he was going to rise? It doesn't even meet the, the, the historical record. Uh, but, but if we go to the equivalency of the penal legal model, the model being somebody has to pay the actual price, the price of death from which there's no resurrection, and not just think that they've done that. So imagine somebody in American uh, or other human government that has the death penalty, and they sentence somebody to death, and they bring them into the, uh, the death chamber where they use the injection of the chemicals to kill them. And, and, and they're all gathered, and they, the sentence is read, and, and they inject them with chemicals, and the person goes out, but in fact had an anesthesiologist put them to sleep. And they woke up less than 72 hours later. Would, would any government say, well, that counts. They thought they were dying. That's the same as killing them. That's what they do. This is what they always do. They play their little games to create these legal fictions to hold to a belief system that is counter to evidence and counter to truth. Let's give, let's, but let me, let me weigh in with some real evidence to show you this. In order for, in order for us to be saved, Jesus had to actually destroy the infection that causes death. Someone had to actually eradicate fear and selfishness from human beings. You might call this the carnal nature. You might call it the selfish nature. You might call it the flesh, etc., etc. Uh, Jesus' humanity was unique. How did Adam come into existence? Out of? Dirt. Yeah. God formed him out of the dirt of the earth, breathed in his nostrils, the breath of life. He became a sinless human being. Eve came from side of Adam, also sinless. Did Jesus' humanity come in either one of those ways? It did not. God didn't create a new body out of dirt and breathe into his nostrils. He didn't come from the side of a sinless being. How about you and me? How did we come into existence? Every person that you've known other than Jesus, we'll get to him in a moment, every other human being, how did they come into existence? A sinful father and a sinful mother. Jesus, did he come into existence that way with a sinful father and a sinful mother? No. no. Notice, he didn't come like Adam, he didn't come like Eve, and he didn't come exactly like us. He's unique. He had a sinful mother, but his father was the Holy Spirit. And so through his mother, he partook of our fallen nature such that he could be tempted in every way like us, yet without sin. And we are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires, James 1. He, James 1. But through his father, he had an internal heart, identity, sense of self that did not resonate. It was not appealing to him. It wasn't something he longed for or liked. It didn't, it didn't have a, a positive uh, a valence toward him, unlike us. Selfishness? Somebody does us wrong? We go, yeah, <laughs> get him, get him. 
And there's something part, some part of us that resonates with it until we're converted. Until we're converted. Jesus didn't have that part. He was able to resist it, but he was, he was still tempted from it. And you see that in Gethsemane when his human emotions tempted him with fear and selfishness. He prayed, Father, he anguished. His emotions were pulling him not to go through the cross. But he didn't allow his emotions to make his choice. He chose to give his life. No one can take my life. I give it freely. Thus, he chose with his human abilities to overcome as a human being every temptation and at the cross destroyed the infection that causes death. And so that's why the Bible says later that he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. Now, let me ask you this. Is dying the second death equivalent to destroying the second death? The Bible says he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. The penal legal adherents say he died the second death. Quite different. He didn't die the first death, which is the death that Adam, Eve, Daniel, uh, and every person you've known died where they just go to sleep. He didn't die that death. He didn't die the second eternal death. What's the eternal death? We'll get to the definition. I haven't got there yet. Maybe I should have saved this point until after I got there. But, but the definite, in fact, we'll come back to that. So make me come back to that. So what's the definition of the second death according to Scripture? Well, Revelation 20.14, the lake of fire is the second death. Revelation 21.8, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. On the cross, did Jesus die in fire? And in fact, what do we understand that fire to be? God's unveiled life-giving glory. Uh, Daniel said, rivers of fire come out from him and tend to... If, if God's life-giving glory would have poured out on Jesus, would Jesus have died? No. No, because there was no sin in him. Okay? In fact, the only way for sinless Jesus to die was for the source of life to separate from him. So the father abandons him on the cross, not as an infliction, not because he's angry, not because he's punishing him, but because jointly they have a mission. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. God was in the son, reconciling the world. Jesus is carrying out the purpose of the father, and the only for that purpose to be realized is at that point, when it came to the point, the father had to let go so he could die and destroy this infection and purify humanity. This is reality. This is what's accomplished. It's the exact opposite of of the lake of fire. That's right. It's also different from first death because Stephen dies the first death being abandoned by the Father or being embraced by the Father and encouraged and seeing and his face lighting like an angel. Okay, there's a big difference. It wasn't first death. It's also not second death. It is the death that destroys the carnal infection of fear and selfishness and restores God's design law perfectly in humanity. And Christ, he's the only one that could have done it. No other human being could have done it. Or angel. angel. Let's give give some other definitions. If you have some other definitions um, of, of, of the second death. Second death is a death from which there is no resurrection. Did Jesus rise again? And does the Bible says it was a different Jesus or this same Jesus? Okay. 
the same Jesus. Jesus gives a description of the two when he says, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body, but can't destroy the soul. First death, body dies, but soul does not. Individuality. That's what the soul is. Psyche, Greek, psyche, individuality. Um, did Jesus have his individuality destroyed at the cross? No. No, he did not. So again, if you use the, the various definitions, lake of fire didn't happen to Jesus. No resurrection didn't happen to Jesus. Uh, individuality erased, destroyed, didn't happen to Jesus. All the biblical definitions of second death, Jesus did not experience it because he did not come to pay a legal penalty. He came to destroy the cause of death and to heal humanity. It's much more profound. So if you were explaining this to somebody and they, he didn't die the first death or the second death, what would you say, just died an unusual death? <laughs> a unique death. It was, it was special and for the purpose. Again, I said it several times in here. It was the death necessary to destroy death. It was the death in which love overcame selfishness. To eradicate the infection of fear and selfishness. So, here's what happened. His mission. He had to die to overcome the carnal drives of fear and selfishness. He had to die to restore God's law of love into the species human. A human being who loved perfectly and would not give in to uh, selfishness. The only one. He had to die to reveal the truth about God's character of love and that God is safe with all power and that he would not use his power to stop his own creatures from killing him. This was part of the revelation at the cross. To expose Satan as a liar and a fraud. And what God actually does to the sinner in the end. And this is where some get confused about the second death. Because what God did, and this is where Graham Maxwell sometimes used language that people think he says Christ died the second death. No, he says that Christ demonstrated what the Father does. And he's right. What did the Father do to Jesus? Let him go to reap what Jesus freely chose. Jesus chose to go through the cross to be our Savior. He was not forced. No one can take my life. Did he feel that God's presence was left him? Yes. So let me, let, me, let me bring the point, okay? He freely chose. God left him free to reap what he chose, and therefore he was abandoned, and he felt that letting go caused anguish. He leaves the wicked in the end to reap what they freely choose. This is God's wrath. Letting people go to reap what they choose. Why did Isaiah write, and I'm, I'm not arguing, I'm just questioning, why did Isaiah write, it pleased the Lord to crush him? Yes, because it was there. If, so if you had a son, and your son was dying of leukemia, and you went in and gave bone marrow in order to save him, would it please you to have your bone marrow crushed and withdrawn to save your son? Would it be pleasing? Yes. Okay. It pleased him for the outcome and result of what it would be accomplished through the process. And this is also why he saw the suffering and was satisfied. If you have a son dying of leukemia, what's the only thing that will truly satisfy you? Yeah. A remedy that cures him. And Jesus was the means whereby sin could be eradicated from the species human and we could be saved. And that's why he was satisfied in what he saw in Christ. It satisfied the longing of his heart to save us. So the father let him go. Not as, we'd already talked about that. 
Okay, so the difference is, I want to tell you, contrast just the difference between what Christ went through on the cross and what the wicked will experience in the end. And, and in the notes, they're here, and there's a Bible reference supporting each one of these. I'm not going to read the Bible text because I want to move on to something else actually quite fun for us too. Um, but here is the contrast. Christ died trusting his Father fully. The wicked die distrusting the Father. Christ died longing to see his Father's face. The wicked die begging for the mountains to hide them from God's face. Christ died while the Father's presence was being hidden from him. The wicked die when God's presence is fully revealed to them. Christ died less than 72 hours. The wicked die eternally. And Christ died, and this is probably the biggest one for me, Christ died when love overcame selfishness. The wicked die overcome by selfishness. Do you understand these experiences of what Christ went through and what the second death event at the time, these are not the same experiences. And all those who teach Christ died the second death cheat us from the deep, powerful um, revelation and accomplishments that we can really understand in what Christ went through in our behalf and for us. So uh, the Monday's lesson... It talks about Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. Melchizedek was not a descendant of Abraham. And we talked about the entire system being a theater already. And then it points out that uh, with the change in the priesthood, there's a change in the law. And, and what do we understand that to be? What kind of a law is the ceremonial law? Or if you set up a theater with props and roles and acted out behaviors... Are those, all of that reality, or are they, is it an artificial enactment of something bigger? It's a prophetic thing that is getting to be fulfilled. Yeah, yeah. So, in other words, it's all imposed. The whole ceremonial system is just an imposed list of rules. Why was somebody a priest? Because it was an artificial decision that Aaron's descendants were going to be priests. Through Levi. The Levites. It had nothing to do with righteousness of character. Look at the how many corrupt priests and high priests there were in Israel. Yeah, exactly. This was all artificial. And so there had to be a change where we stopped doing artificial things and start doing the reality to which they point. And the reality to which they point is, of course, healing the hearts and minds. That's why it says in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 about the blood of goats um, and ashes. These are only ceremonial, um, ceremonially unclean to, to be sanctified ceremonially. How much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences? Cleanse our consciences. What does it mean to have your conscience cleansed? Is cleansing your conscience a legal adjustment in a registry in heaven somewhere? No, it's not. Understand, the blood of Christ does not make erasures and historical documents, appeals to judicial magistrates. Understanding the blood of Christ is a metaphor for his sinless life. When you ingest the blood, you're ingesting the life of Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have new motives. We have new, uh, new desires. The old is gone. The new has come. 
Thus we have a cleansed conscience because we have a new identity in Christ. And we have peace. It's an actual healing and transformation. Tuesday's lesson, I'm jumping now. I'm really going fast. Moving, moving, moving. Don't you feel it? We're like going down the interstate with no seatbelt. A second paragraph in Tuesday's lesson said, Priests are mediators between God and human beings. Uh, that's not where I want to go. Let's see. I want to get to... Yeah, I'm going to go to Wednesday's lesson. I think we need to go. We might, we might have to come back, but... Um, Yeah, Wednesday's lesson, it talks about the first paragraph. Jesus received the priesthood on the basis of an indestructible life and because he holds an uh, an eternal ministry. The implication of uh, these facts is astounding. It means that Jesus' ministry will never be surpassed or outclassed. Jesus saves completely, eternally, to the uttermost. The salvation that Jesus provides is total and final. It reaches the innermost aspects of the human nature. Jesus' intercession before God involves all the benefits granted under the new covenant. She, she said it was great up until that last sentence. <laughs> I, I do. I like how it describes all of the very rich uh, accomplishments and achievements and the inner transformation and so forth, the healing that's ha- taking place, returning human beings back to God's original intention that he intended them to be in Eden uh, through Christ. So I think this is beautiful, and it's happening in hearts and minds, in the new covenant, write my law in your hearts and minds, and so forth. If you want to understand record books in heaven, if you ever get that language, it's in Scripture, just think medical records. When you think your medical record, your medical record doesn't determine your health condition. Amen. It just records it. The heavenly records don't determine your spiritual condition. They just record it. If you want something changed in your medical record, like you've got a cancer in your lung and your, and your medical record shows and documents the cancer in your lung, if you want your medical record to show that you don't have cancer, what do you need to do? Get the treatment so you don't have lung cancer anymore. If you want your medical record to show righteousness in heaven, then what do you have to have on earth? Righteousness in your heart on earth. That's how the records change. The records change by you experiencing transformation and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, rebirth, renewal, recreation, heart of stone removed, heart of flesh put, circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. All the metaphors are teaching actual transformation, and that's how we change the record. But what do you think of this idea of Jesus' intercession before the Father? Well, notice there's nothing wrong if you understand before the Father to be before the Father and not to the Father. All Jesus' actions are happening before or under the purview of God. He is God's agency. He is God's um, executor to carry out the will of the Father. It does not say, for God was so angry at the world that he needed Jesus to plead to him so he would love it. It doesn't say that anywhere, does it? No, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And if you read in other places, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, the scripture says. 
New creation in Christ, all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Christ was the means whereby God was working to reconcile us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, if you want to look it up. Do you understand? God was not counting men's sins against them. What about that angel that follows us everywhere and keeps record of everything we're doing? If God is for us, who can be against us? You know that one, Romans 8, 31. Understand the Scripture is very consistent. God is always on our side. He's always for us, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they're in a united effort for our transformation and healing. But Thursday's lesson, so everything that Jesus was doing was happening before or under the purview of the Father. But Thursday's lesson, this is what we're going to close with, I want to get to after making this point about before and not to the Father. Thursday's lesson uh, says in the second paragraph the following. Jesus' perfect obedience during his earthly life made it possible for him to offer himself as an acceptable sacrifice to God. And then we read, and they quote Hebrews 9.14, and we will read Hebrews 9.14 out of the NIV. Here's what it says, quote, How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Has that text just ruined everything I just said? What law lens are you looking at it through? Go back. If you look at it through the human law lens, this text is one of their favorites. The blood was offered to God to pay for our sin. Do you understand? That's how it's presented. If you have design law model, though, what's the other way to present it? This gets a little excited. I get goosebumps when I think about this. If God so loved the world that he sent his son, if God is for us, if the fullness of God dwelt in Christ bodily, and if sin is a problem that exists in humans that causes the gulf, then what is it that God wants? What does he need? My cooperation is surrendered. Say it out loud. He needs the remedy. He needs the remedy to carry out his will. He needs the remedy that Jesus went to earth to get and provide that we just went through what he accomplished. And so he goes back to his father and says, Here, Father, I present it to you. Use it. And 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 what did he say? He was going to go back to the Father and request to, he told his disciples the highest gift that he can request. The Comforter. And when the Comforter comes, he's going to take what Christ has achieved and make it known to us. So this is the reality of what's happening. And if you want a a, a Spirit of Prophecy quote, uh, this is from Desire of Ages uh, 671. The Holy Spirit was the highest of all gifts that he could solicit from his Father for the exaltation of his people. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent And without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been to no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy 
but in the fullness of divine power. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit the heart is made pure, cleansed, cleansing of the sanctuary. I can't even have time to go into all that. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes partaker of the divine nature. So he comes to earth, does all that I described, can't go through it again real quick, achieves the perfection of humanity, eradicates the infection of sin, restores God's law, goes back to the Father, presents himself, use me and what I've achieved, and the Father sends the Spirit, taking all that Christ achieved to finish the Father's will of saving you and me. Praise the Lord. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love. Thank you so much that you are our creator. Thank you so much for the truths that you have revealed to us in your word. And thank you so much for Jesus who overcame and we never could. We humble ourselves. We ask for the spirit to be dispatched, to take the victory of Christ, reproduce it in us. So it's no longer our old self-living, but we live with the full mighty presence of the Holy Spirit reproducing Christ within. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.